0: A lot of people took up trading this year. I think 10 million retail brokerage accounts.
1: GameStop is set to continue their head-spinning ascent today. Shares are now up more than 60%. And Wall Street is losing its mind. And Wall Street now... They're predicting they're going to be embarrassed. And you're right. They're trying to avoid that.
2: You are the woman who the character in Billions was in large part modeled on yourself. 7.2
1: million.
0: So what's it saying?
1: That I'm awesome.
0: There you go. And what does it have to say back?
1: She yeah. says you, I, I would never say you need to snap out so it. Over. Get out there and do what needs to be done. The research shows that the more you can put the emotion into words and get it right. So labeling your emotion. Dec- yeah, the better decision you'll make. So I want someone to be able to say, I'm flipping panic. So why is it got to be so damn tough? Because I know when they like nail the fact that they're panicked, they will actually like almost immediately be left.
2: Welcome to the Toughness Podcast. My name is Paddy Steinfeld, your host. Today, we're, we're going to take an approach that at first glance might seem a little different to some of our audience. You probably know one of the guests as the basis of a character on the uh, show Billions on Showtime. Denise Schull has been a performance coach for uh, high-end traders, stock market gurus, hedge fund managers for... Denise, how long is it now? Coming up on a decade, two decades, mm-hmm. how long has this been uh, your gift? Yeah, seven,
1: 16, 17 years, I think, since no. I had my very first client as a
2: coach. All right. So we're going we're gonna to learn a lot out of those 16, 17 years. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Alongside Denise, we have John Burns, who also works as a performance advisor now, but had a, a longer career. And again, I'm going to ask you, John, it's, I think it's decades uh, as an actual trader on the floor of the Chicago Stock Exchange, is that correct?
0: Well, yes. I was a, I was a floor trader on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange for 17 years or so. I traded feeder cattle options, so small cows they feed up for beef, very specialized. But um, I did that for 17 years, and then I traded for a handful of years off the trading floor using various different systems mechanical discretionary algorithms, and I, I still manage uh, my own money now trading basically equities and ETFs.
2: All right. So I'm already going to put a disclaimer in this for our listeners because there's been about 20 words thrown out that I'm a little bit aware of what they mean, but we're going mm-hmm. to, we might pause occasionally and be like, hey, what does that actually mean? But in general, that sounds very, very specific, right? John, you, you said small cattle feeding stock options, right? And so, kind that of, sounds, yeah. that's, okay, so even <laughs> I'm already screwing it up, but it sounds I like- I don't this, even
1: get it all the time. So you know, <laughs> well, good. Now,
2: now I feel better. But the, the question I'm going to ask up front is how, because it's so specialized and so specific there, how are we going to translate that to a broader audience of people who might be uh, athletes, might be Office workers might be working in the military. Like, there's a lot of different humans who are listening to this who don't trade small cattle stock options on the Chicago <laughs> mercantile trading floor. So, how, how does this, how does what you do apply to the broader public?
0: You know, for, for what I did effectively was I felt what people were going to do around me, and I used that as information on how to best take advantage of opportunities. And so, through working with Denise, now I was a client of Denise's for about five years off and on before I started um, coaching with Denise, and she was able to help me kind of figure out that when I had these feelings in the context of a trading environment, that I needed to pay attention to those. So, for me, yes, it's very specialized, trading feeder cattle options on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. However, the strategies and tactics that I used, mainly looking inside myself and using that gut feel and understanding when it was gut feel and when it was impulse, I would use that information to make the best decisions. I use that information on the golf course. I use that information coaching kids baseball. You know, I use it... uh, uh, you know, how to interact with my wife, when to stay quiet and when to speak up. And so for (laughs) me, these things are universal. And Denise has done an amazing job synthesizing some very different areas into one um, kind of streamlined, next level approach to performance.
2: You mentioned a couple of things there. I'm going to pick up on the word impulse because when when we spoke before the show, the three of us, and I was just saying, hey, here's probably what we're going to talk about. My gut feel was because we're talking about trading stocks and million-dollar deals and all that sort of stuff, like the stuff that we see on the TV shows if we're not actually heavily involved in the stock market, I'm assuming risk is going to be the number one thing that we're all going to talk about, right? But you mentioned impulse and, and being able to tune into whether it's a response or a reaction to what we're seeing, to, to what's unfolding in front of us and maybe what we expect. And Denise, John just mentioned the synthesis of a number of different areas. Maybe that's a good chance to jump back into how you ended up with that first client almost 20 years ago now because it's probably, <laughs> it's probably not a normal path right, to end up as someone who, like John said, he traded for a long time and then got into advising other traders. That wasn't the case for you, was it? How did you end up? Having a client who was a professional trader who handled millions of dollars, you were advising them on how to handle themselves, handle the money, and yet you hadn't done that yourself.
1: I'm going to take a step back just because it makes it a little more, I don't know.
2: Take it where you want.
1: Yeah. So I was like climbing the corporate ladder at IBM and thought I was going to be some sort of corporate executive selling computers. Realized, oh no, I can't be doing that at 40 because it's going to be beyond boring. So I took this hard right turn from possibly getting an MBA to uh, doing a degree in what's now called neuropsychoanalysis. At the time, it was called biopsychology, which basically was just like, what's the biology of our psychology? And as I was doing that, I played volleyball with four traders in Chicago. Not, they traded at the options exchange, not the Merck where John was. And they kept telling me I'd be a good trader, and I was like, what are you guys talking about? But, it, but anyway, between my master's and PhD, they invited me to come upstairs, which was one of some of the first upstairs electronic computerized trading firm. I was writing a master's thesis about how emotion and perception and judgment work. This is the connection. Hard right turn then, another hard right turn into becoming a trader And then some number of years later, someone came back to me in an academic journal and wanted to publish that master's thesis on emotion, perception, judgment, how we really decide, do we have an unconscious? I was trading. I wasn't planning on being in that field. But when I went to, to republish that paper, the neuroscientist showed you had to have emotion to make a decision. And at that point, the whole trading world was, you know, and they still are in very many ways. I mean, you can certainly turn on a financial channel and hear someone take, say, take the emotion out of it. What the neuroscience was showing in the early 2000s is you literally cannot do that. And if you do do it, which you can't, but if you, you can't make a decision without emotion. Right. And I was like, well, darn, that like changes <laughs> everything. And I literally was talking to someone who then, finagled that I write an article about it who then someone asked me to speak and then someone, asked me, someone called and wanted to be coached wow. in this right. new view of looking at it.
2: Well, that's a, a very interesting journey to even just the start of the rest of the journey and that's been fascinating in and of itself. But you mentioned a couple of things there that, that to, at least to me sound intriguing and almost counterintuitive, right? But, but, well, firstly, the people you're playing volleyball with said that you would make a good trader. And, and yeah. in, in, in most fields, people who have been around it long enough can say, this is what makes a good trader. But in particular with this show and the topic of this show, we're interested in what makes someone tough in that arena. Is that the same thing? Like if that, if that is the case, what does toughness look like for a trader or specifically John on the trading floors? I'll throw it to you first, John, when you're on the floor, what's a tough trader look
0: like? You know, again, for me, I'll go back to the context of me at that time. Uh, which is definitely different than me now. So at that time, a tough trader was the guy who could scream and yell the loudest and be the most aggressive because on the trading floor, when a market is asked for, the, the guy who says it first gives the first best market controls the trade. And so toughness in that arena is to be able to, you know, Yeah, it's it's hard, and and I and I didn't appreciate this until I started to help traders come onto the trading floor and start trading. That it's hard to go in there with a bunch of strangers and scream at the top of your lungs, especially because you're going to be wrong early on, and everybody's going to ride you for it. And Mm -hmm. so, toughness in that environment is the ability to make mistake after mistake, and and be, you know, really have have people keep people ride you and make you feel terrible. Yet the next time the trade comes up, still get up there and scream and yell and stay after it. Yeah. And so that courage. perseverance, courage, perseverance, confidence, you know, for me, it was, it was this aggressive, uh, rage filled outlet that was glorious. Um, because on the trading floor, you could scream and yell about nothing and nobody would say a thing. Whereas if you're on the train and you start screaming and yelling, people, people think you're crazy. Yeah, I've so. only tried
2: that once. It didn't end up well.
0: <laughs> no, it usually doesn't.
2: <laughs> De- Denise, what do, what do you think it was that, you, that your uh, volleyball teammates and opponents saw in you and said, yeah, that's a good trader. That's going to be someone who who's, we want on our
1: side. Read other people, which didn't make any sense to me. Once I actually started trading... Uh, I'm trying to learn how to do it, right? And these these prices are moving back and forth, and there's these charts of how they move back and forth. And I'm like, what does reading other people have to do with it? They would talk about the market, says, can't you see what they're doing? Can't you see what he's doing? And I'd be like, who's the they and the he and all of that? This is a bunch of numbers dancing around the screen. As it turns out, the neuroscience research into trading shows that people who are using what's called theory of mind, which is a psychological term, but, you know, you have a theory of someone else's mind and really that's like a academic term for reading people Yep. that what's really going on when you're good at trading is you're using theory of mind and you're not using math. So they had seen that I was naturally good at theory of mind and that's why they thought I would be Good on the floor, albeit not the same floor John was on, but a different floor.
2: And so theory of mind in that case, uh, let me just clarify for my own need, let alone listeners. Theory of mind, as I agree with you, it's about reading people or the understanding of here's how that person's mind is working right now or what what, what I think is happening in their mind. Was it applied to the markets as that market has a mind and I'm trying to read the market's mind or was it talking about the person who's making the moves on the market?
1: It's talking about the market. Oh, wow. It's, It's talking about the market. But at the end of the day, the market's a social mechanism. It's just a bunch of people, you know, paying what they want to pay. I mean, maybe they use computers to do it and maybe they don't. But at the end of the day, it's like one huge...
2: It's you a know, bunch, of minds, yeah. bunch of minds,
1: yeah.
2: A bunch of minds that make up a bigger mind—the group mind, if you will.
1: My, my other
2: question about the counterintuitiveness of the advice from the neuropsychologist or the research—not just advice—it was proven, obviously—is that it's it's counterproductive to take emotion out of decision making. You make worse decisions if you don't use emotion. Which, which you're right in saying that a it surprised you, but it definitely will surprise a lot of listeners because we're all advised to like make rational decisions and, you know, take a moment to yeah. settle down and breathe, right? How yeah can yeah. you explain why that works and, and what the why that is the case?
1: Well, there's a couple reasons. <laughs> so we could guess it depends on how fundamentally scientific you want me to get, but I I'm gonna get at what we know. Basically the fundamental mechanism of perception and judgment is what's called anticipatory affect or we are predicting a feeling we don't really know we're doing that like we're predicting everything by the way that's being shown to be the mechanism of the brain like you're predicting the next words that are going to come out of my mouth based on your knowledge of the english language and if i said something really you know, out of sync, you'd be like, what? It would be jarring to you. Now you got Um, me
2: thinking because I was just looking for a spot to jump in there and ask a question and now I'm thinking about what I'm thinking about, what you're thinking. (laughs) We're about to go down a rabbit hole. But I I do have a question though. You were saying the, we're anticipatory affect as in I'm predicting what I'm going to feel based on the decision I make. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah.
2: Right. Okay. Continue. Sorry.
1: And, And if you think about it, like, any decision, I don't care what it is, you have, but you know, someone with some pocket of expertise is using their expertise to evaluate some situation, but they don't make the decision on the data. Everyone thinks that we make the decision on the data. What actually makes you make the decision and take action is the feeling about the data, either the confidence in what it means or the fear of what will happen if you don't. It's the feeling that goes along with a set of facts, you know, that causes you to take action. For, like, hundreds of years, I mean, like, sort of since the Greek, we thought that it was the, the data. It's not. It's the feeling about the data. And none of us have been taught to, like, work with that side of the equation, which is the pivotal one, in any sort of organized, systematic way. In fact, most of the time we're told to, well, we're told these contradictory things. Take the emotion out, but have confidence. Well, (laughs) or in the hedge fund, yeah. Or in the hedge fund world, it's take the emotion out and have conviction. Well, conviction is like an intense form of confidence and I don't know what planet people would have to be on to say that's not an emotion, it's an emotion. I mean, conviction is a physical experience that you are right about something. That's an emotion. Yeah. And if you don't have that, you're not going to do the thing. Or you're going to do it for a different emotional reason, like you're afraid of something and you're trying to avoid something.
2: I mean, you've, you've just painted it there, the perfect dichotomy of, hey, don't, you know, take your feelings out of it, but back yourself, as they might say in, in sport, right? hmm have you, have you actually observed changes in people's ability to do this? Because, ta- like, I'm thinking to some of the sports teams that I've worked with who now have analytics departments coming out their wazoo because that's where, you know, particularly for the owners who are billionaire traders themselves and they back in numbers-based solutions. They've got analytics department to predict what this player is going to produce and this player is going to make and all that sort of business. I'm hard-pressed to think of an analytics person, just even an avatar or a you know caricature of that sort of, role who would be open to changing the way they approach their data so i'm curious to know Mm -hmm. how that works in a data-driven industry
0: i really believe that using the Schull method meaning recognizing patterns of thoughts and feelings that are consistent around a performance moment is the way to augment and move to further success using analytics so i 'm a baseball guy, so a baseball example is what i 'll use. Why is it that x hitter struggles against y pitcher? Well, the data says that it's true. Well, there must be a reason behind why that's the case it It could be arbitrary, but most likely it's not. Most likely, there is some set of thought and feeling that the batter has a, towards the pitcher or an experience where he his the batter's mom was at the game, and he struck out with this pitcher, and that repeats every time after that that he faces this hitter. It's the kind of the reason that some people always beat other people. You know, like I played a fair amount of golf, and there would be t- uh, one guy in particular on any given day he could beat be me for sure, 50, at least 50% of the time. But in a club championship, he had zero chance. Why is that? I don't know. So my point is that using the show method, understanding these patterns of thoughts and feelings in the context of performance can help either strengthen an analytic point that is seen through the mathematical data or kind of turn around a negative point, a struggle area, uh, uh, an area that really needs to be improved. And so for me, that's why Using this stuff and, and really getting down to the nitty gritty on what do I feel and why Denise's superpower the rethink group superpower question, uh, it could put push performance kind of to the next level.
2: Uh, let me let me grab that. You mentioned the shell method and I'm going to throw this to you Denise because it's named after you mm-hmm. a- and it's a, a method and a model that you've built over this many years. In and around people who are making these huge, high-stakes decisions, it's it's not dissimilar to the approach that performance coaches like myself may take with athletes. But there's a little difference, and maybe it's just a a thing that's assumed comes along with it. But we will ask the question often with a player of searching for good performances or potentially a bad one, but often looking for, like you say, here's a here's a performance experience, here's a, here's a thing that's happened. When you play well, we'll use the baseball example John just threw up. When you play well against that pitcher, what are you paying attention to? What are you feeling? It's a less controllable thing, but what are you doing? Like, and, and they're the three things. If you can identify what they are, let's just do those next time. Let's prioritise those as the things you pay attention to and the things you put first and generally, that'll rep- give you the best chance of replicating that good performance. So it sounds similar, but we, we specifically talk about action in there as well. Whereas, John, you've just mentioned thoughts and feelings. Denise, is that, am I seeing a parallel there where there's not, or is it, is it a different thing?
1: Well, yes and no.
2: Give me the yes and then the no.
1: Well, the yes is when you go through your list of things you know, forgive me for this, but I, I, you may not realize that what you're actually trying to do is create a set of feelings for that player, create a set of that they feel calmer and more confident, and they have a workable strategy against this, you know, either pitcher or hitter that they've struggled against. You're yeah, trying to say, true. you've over here, X, Y, and Z happened, and over here, X, Y, and Z worked, so presumably you felt good about that. Let's port that over to this other situation. So you're trying to create a set of feelings that they can just operate, they can do what they know how to do and interrupt whatever feeling has been operating with this particular other player, you know, and wherever it came from.
2: For that part, I 100% agree, because one of the things we'll often say early on with a player is stop worrying about how you feel about this person who's got your number right now because the game doesn't give a shit how you feel. Like, it's more about getting their mm-hmm. attention off the current feelings and shifting them to what do we want to be doing and what do we want to be paying attention to. So I think, you, I think you're 100% right there in terms of shifting attention and trying to move them to a better place.
1: But if you think about that, that's cognitive. You're like, you're using their cognition. You're using their ability to think. You're using where they're putting their focus. What I would do is, um, get underneath the feeling and basically puncture it. it, cause it to evaporate, which would end up having the same, at least the same result. So how would, you, under- how would
2: you puncture it and cause it to evaporate? Can you Like we got to get
1: at what it's really about. Like when did, it, when did it start with this person? Oftentimes this is the easiest thing to do with an athlete. Like someone's got a, you know, we'll, we'll call it a slump in a specific circumstance. Going back to when that started and helping them realize what they were feeling, like, you know, was it a special game and they made a mistake and they were embarrassed or whatever. Like, I don't care. Just go back to when the situation started. Help them recognize what feelings they left that situation with and resolve those, which it's always virtually always not as bad as they thought it was you know, situation one, whenever the scenario started. And then they just don't have the problem anymore. Like literally the feeling goes away when they go back to the beginning and then they can just easily be themselves. It's like the, I don't know, the shadows, you know, you've shown the light on the, on the shadow that they don't even realize is there because they think they've long since forgotten about whatever, you know, But because the brain works on this anticipatory affect based on past experience, and that past experience is like buried in their subconscious, it's influencing that. Now, sometimes, you know, telling them to forget about it and and, um, porting over uh, an emotional experience from a different situation will be strong enough to interrupt the experience that's causing the problem.
2: It's interesting that, that you say that you use the words porting over there because it's uh, the people who come from a mindfulness-based approach, right, where, where their the basic premise is thoughts will come and go, feelings will come and go. So you have this feeling and, you, and it might resurface persistently and consistently you know, given a set of triggers but that if you accept its presence and then just focus on something else, that that will fade away. Is that you're, you're, But you're saying that, that that won't happen. You need to actually attend to it so that it won't keep popping up.
1: Well, I think there's a, there's a, a layered approach to it, right? Okay. So if, if you use the mindfulness approach and it works, great. You know, it doesn't always work, right? If
0: mm-hmm. you
1: use the, I'll call it the cognitive instruction approach, which maybe, maybe I'll say is the more complicated one. You know, it's like step two if the mindfulness approach doesn't work. If it works, mm-hmm. great. It mm-hmm. doesn't always work. Um, so it doesn't always work. Like, if you have an intractable problem, working on this level of how someone feels is a real weapon. Yeah. Because that's... you're, you're work, working with the way the brain's really working. I can't even begin to count the number of slumps in different arenas that have been solved by making it okay for the person to go back and feel they're, you know, they're mad at themselves, they were frustrated, they were embarrassed or whatever, like show them that there was an emotional logic to their reaction. You know, They let themselves down, they let their team down, whatever, um, they let somebody down and you know, they felt bad about it. And they, then they see, okay, well that reaction was perfectly reasonable. Of course I felt that way. By the way, I think those ne- so-called negative feelings are meant to cause you to pay attention to how do I prevent this from happening again? Right. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's partly why they stick around too. Because like if you never take sure. that lesson, like your psyche is still trying to get you to learn that Protect lesson.
2: Protect you. It's protection, right? Exactly. It's a, you've got a heuristic that you haven't coded yet, so it's trying to keep reminding you. But I I mean, exactly. if I could if I could represent Uh, and you can't do it on a podcast, unfortunately, but if I could visually bring up something right now, it would be the emoji of a face with the brains exploding at the top because what 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 you've just described there is a a next level of what I have, have like, I'm kind of smug about it when I talk to other psychologists around. I learned the cognitive method first as as a pro athlete because it was the only thing that was taught to me and it made sense and it kind of worked sometimes. But it definitely wasn't as reliable as I wanted. Uh, I'd I'd positive rethink and all these affirmations and I would have uh, visualizations and it was all about, you know, talking myself into the right spot. And then as I came to study it and dive into it more as a coach, and particularly when I started applying stuff, different techniques with the best people in the world in football, baseball, whatever, I started to find the mindfulness thing was actually, it's a, a different level. It's a much more superficial, quick fix level, like we're going to fix this in two seconds. We ain't got shit time to talk about that. Just like, trust me that the feeling will go away, Now focus back on this thing. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and so often I'll talk that there's some nuance and there's some levels and not once have I ever heard about, well, sorry, I think in my gut, if we're talking about recognizing patterns, I would say that I always knew there was another level, but that's when I send someone to a shrink. That's when I'm like, yo. <laughs> There's some deeper stuff going on here, and you know we'll keep working at this top level. But you need to go see my guy over here. And I do have people I refer to like that. But you have just expanded my current
1: repertoire.
2: Repertoire. You you could see the face on the screen right now of this Zoom call, and I am an emoji with my brains exploding at the top. Um, (laughs) You you mentioned slumps in different arenas. I'm going to throw back to you, John, because we are talking specifically about how this stuff works with people who make high stakes decisions with money on the floor of an exchange or as you shifted to computer-based trading, there's still high risk and there's still lots of money. Like, like just to give the listeners an idea, what's an average day's movement for you in terms of I'm going to put this much money over here? Like what does that look like? How much money are we talking
0: well, my, my, when I was on the trading floor, my, my total positions that I held overnight were in the hundreds of millions of dollars of notional value. Okay. So because it was an illiquid market, so I would have options, hundreds of options on each month going out 18 months.
2: Right. So there's, there's just, just to anchor people on the, the, the size of these decisions and the stakes that are at hand as you make these decisions. There's $100 million on the line. Let's just use that as a round figure. And you're in a slump. What does a slump look like for a trader?
0: Well, again, you know, it goes back to what Denise was saying, and and, and for me, these things that don't match for me a, a, a signal that something is wrong is the intensity of the emotion doesn't match the situation. So, in the trading context, if if I'm trading and I am super nervous or afraid or angry. If I can get behind and figure out what's going on, then I could circumvent that so get get behind way, get behind the curtain meaning dig or? dig yes, correct right. dig into okay. what am I feeling and why um, and what the way I think about it is is that our our brain mind gets in this feedback loop where the intensity of the emotion overrides everything and until we can put the proper words around what we're really feeling. And for a slump, it's going back to when the slump started and figuring out I'm ashamed because of I'm embarrassed, I'm angry, whatever it is. And the more nuanced words we can put around it, as Denise likes to say, when, when the right word hits the feeling, the feeling dissipates, the energy goes way down. And then we're able to see the market, as it is be in the moment to use a more current term um and less colored by our past experience and Mm -hmm. a lot of times slumps the way we think about things are are influenced by feelings from the past childhood Mm -hmm. in particular and they get they get superimposed or entangled with the present moment and therefore we're unable to see the present moment as it is
2: so, you, you, like, you mentioned a lot about the affect side of things there in terms of intensity of emotion not matching reality, being able to rec- see things for, as they are as opposed to how we want them to be or how we're scared they are. Mm. But but let's talk about how things as they are. Well, what would the scoreboard look like for a – like, what does a slump mean in a numbers sense? If you're trading $100 million, does it mean you just miss opportunities and you – shit, I should have made that move and then I didn't do it? Or is it, I made 12 bad decisions and I just lost $20 million? Like what What's what does it look like?
0: Bad decision? Great question. Great question. So it it obviously runs the gamut. So for me, early on, it was, you know, losing $10,000, dollars $20,000 a day for a few days. Um, as I became more attuned to what I felt and how that affects my decision-making process that would be missing some trades or not maximizing trades it would be less this string of negatives so in, a, in an athlete's turn again baseball it's it's you know getting eking out a hit in 10 rather than striking out 10 times you know fouling off 50 and you know, rather than missing 50, it, it's a progression as you start to understand more about what you're really feeling and, and, and understand what cur- your triggers are. So I have patterns of thoughts and feelings that for me are, are tips that something is right or something is wrong. If I immediately think about money when I'm looking at a trade, I think this is a good setup and I think, oh, man, this is going to really make a lot of money. I'm in big trouble. I shouldn't take that trade. If I look at a trade and I'm somewhat convinced I have a good feeling about it, but then I talk myself out of it because it, that's, I mean, I can't guess. That's a guess. Usually that's a trade that I should take. So, so understanding our personal database of combinations of thoughts and feelings, the patterns for you know, the individual is really important. And so the question I guess is the it's it's an individual endeavor that that I have to find and I help my clients in the same way to find, oh yeah, well, you know, and Denise was really good at helping me understand this. I remember I came back and I talked to Denise after after I got home from from work taking the train and I said, you know, Denise, I, I thought I should really get short the British pound. I thought of it on a train, it just came out of nowhere. Clearly I can't. That means nothing. And over time, Denise added up all of these statements and she said, you know what, maybe there's something to that. And there was, and I just the thought The feelings on a train,
1: yeah. Yeah, the yeah. feelings,
0: the random, quote unquote, random feelings about trades.
2: Trades on a train. It's a nice thing yeah,
0: for theologographer there. That's right, Denise I, and I write that book.
1: <laughs> Patty, I have a good example of a, a, a trader in a slump. Hit me. Um, this has been like 10 years ago. I get this call from this guy who says he's been in the slump for ten years. And I'm like thinking to myself
2: That is a slump.
1: (laughs) He had been on the New York Mercantile Exchange, like trading oil, had been like phenomenal, went to a hedge fund, done well. Somewhere in there, his wife was kidnapped. Not for his money, but for her father's money, it turns out. Um she got back, she eventually got back, she was safe. That wasn't the problem. Um, he could never make money after that. Um, until, like, but he finally got to me, and he managed to bounce around. Because he'd been so good originally, he managed to bounce around, like, to a hedge fund for a few years, then to a bank for a few years. And I think when he called me, he was just going back to a, I can't remember if it was just going back to a new hedge fund or was just going back to a new bank. And he's like, I got to make it work this time or I am done. And so he tells me this story, and I'm like, "Well, I think to myself, it's got to be something around, around this." And he's like, "No, no, I've been to the therapists, I've done this, I've done that. I'm like, so over that." I keep him talking, and you know, basically, he felt responsible, and he felt, you know, impotent that he didn't, um, you know, keep her safe. And once I got him to admit, even though he thought it was completely like resolved, and Ancient history. And they were had been divorced by this time. They're good friends, but they were he was divorced and remarried by this time. Um, all as a result of what happened with kidnapping. Like once he was able to put that into words, like really how awful he felt, he like the slump was over. He just started making money left and right. And to use your like your previous question, when traders get in slumps, a phrase they'll use, they can't buy a trade. I mean, they just cannot make
2: That's rest. it. They say the same thing in the dugout of Major League Baseball. I can't buy a hit. Okay? Right. They, they literally say the same words, with the last one changed. And oftentimes, tell me if this is true in your arena, in the arena you're most specialised in. Oftentimes it begins, may not continue on once they realise they're in it and they're trying to get out of it, but oftentimes it, it 100% begins with, it's because they're avoiding something. There's an avoidance of, I don't want to screw this up. They're almost like playing not to lose as opposed to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cream this pitcher, right? Or, or I'm coming up against LeBron and instead of like, I just don't want him to embarrass me, I'm going to be like, I'm getting after that dude. He's the best in the world, but I'm going for it. Like, does that same pattern or trend apply in terms of when traders get stuck, it's because they're avoiding things as opposed to getting after things?
1: Well, think about what you said. You said, I don't want LeBron to embarrass me. Let's go back to what I said about predicting a feeling. Mm -hmm. Like, they're predicting they're going to be embarrassed. And you're right. They're trying to avoid that. If they can really, like, admit the possibility of being embarrassed, like, just own it, then oftentimes they'll go, well, heck, no, you know, I'm going to, I am not going to let that happen. And they, they'll flip. But what happened, they're afraid of really feeling that possible embarrassment. Like mm-hmm. it's too hard to actually imagine it. They are like subconsciously, but consciously they're too afraid to do it. We help them do it in a way that then just eradicates it really. And, and then they naturally turn to the, what can I do? You know, okay, forget that. I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. And as you said, get after it. We're using the feeling in a like a martial arts kind of way.
2: Yeah, okay. Because I was going to say that it's the, if we're going to use the martial arts analogy, I'm going to have to shift the words I was using, but the fist isn't going to go away. It could still hurt you. You just remove the fear of the fist. Kind of. Kind of? Except the fear of the fist. And that's, and that's one, of the, one of the great, I had a conversation with a, an Olympic, a former Olympic medalist, four-time Olympic medalist, literally yet, yesterday sitting in a cafe in new york city talking about his plan to deal with this pause and still make it to tokyo and still see if he can meddle again
1: mm-hmm. and
2: and we eventually got to talking after a while like he was like you know and i'm just there was a lot of maybe statements there was a lot of i'm gonna you know we'll see how we go we'll get to three months i'll maybe do that. and i'm like hey man are you doing this or not like what's going on here because you're kind of hedging your bets Fast forward a little bit through the conversation, eventually he agreed to give me his Olympic, one of his Olympic medals. I currently have in my backpack his silver Olympic medal. And the deal is that we're gonna auction it on eBay if he doesn't stick to this set of like, here's what we're gonna do. And part of the removing, not removing, accepting the consequences is like, part of doing this is you could fail and you could be incredibly embarrassed. Are you okay with that? Because once you can swallow that pill, then we can really get after it. Then we stop half assing our practice and we stop making excuses for not doing x or y and you just do things that are going to move you closer as opposed to avoiding falling away.
1: Yeah, I mean in a way that it's not the exact same thing that we're doing, but it it's parallel. You're 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 asking them to face a feeling and you know while we would we basically change how they feel about the feeling. You're specifically trying to change how they respond to the feeling.
2: So how do you, change I mean, when you say, when you say f- how you feel about a feeling, what, what do you mean by that?
1: You know, whether it's fear, frustration, disappointment, embarrassment, like all those feelings may have emotional logic to them in, in these situations. Like and all of them actually can be motivating. If you understand what they're about, like really mm-hmm. not wanting to be embarrassed, if you really go, oh, my gosh, I do not want to be embarrassed. Well, what's the surest way to not be embarrassed? Just train hard. No, train hard. Prepare. Well, like, but if he quit, he's not going to be embarrassed. Well, but I bet you he also wants, wants another chance.
2: Sure, this, but there are, this, there are, it's the easiest the, and quickest way to avoid embarrassment well, is to just not do it.
1: Well... And laugh, but with that, you can't satisfy your desire. So, like, you that's go. another thing we use is what, what do you really want? Like, yeah. leverage people's desire. It drives me crazy when people say, like, you know, don't want it. Well, heck, wanting it is what's going to make you do it. Like, want it a lot so that you'll do the work to get it. Like, yeah. And, and I
2: think that your point about the, the, like, how do you avoid embarrassment? Train your ass off. That's really what we were getting at with the give me your medal. Like, it'll be really embarrassing if that goes on eBay. So I'm pretty sure right. he's going to train a little bit harder just by the fact that I'm going to dangle that medal in front of him on his phone every other day. Just be like, hey, man, this looks really good when i hang it on my wall. And I'm going to draw well, up yeah. an actual eBay post and be like, this is what it's going to look like <laughs> when it goes on eBay.
1: You're, what you're doing is you're you're making it really clear a possible future feeling that right. he's then try, you're you're trying to motivate him by avoiding a future feeling. Yeah. So you would go you go about it differently than we do, but like the the mechanism that you're invoking is actually fundamentally the same.
2: Yeah, the future feeling mm-hmm. that and, you mentioned. And by the way, the if
0: if we feel that 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 feeling is strong, meaning the I just want to quit feeling is strong we'll go there with a client and say, well, well, why don't why don't you quit? And usually what yeah. comes out is then, then they're like, you know, this guy, this is BS. I don't want to quit. Why is this guy saying I should quit?
2: Yeah, yeah. And so a,
0: then that's a way to kind of validate those feelings and say, yeah, a part of you does want to quit. But a part of you, much bigger part, really wants to do it.
2: I, I often, it's a trick question that I'll use early on with an athlete. I remember vividly a pro bowl player, former Super Bowl winner, at the first NFL team I worked with who was talking about one of the things that would pop into his mind early, like very quickly, if he made a mistake on the field was what's Twitter going to say? Oh. And, we're, and, we're, and I was like, well, firstly, I was like, are you kidding That's really what you think? thinking? Right. But, you know, we all go to different places. And what we ended up talking about was, well, I used the trick question, like, hey, I, I've got a trick that can, like that, it'll go away like that, like super quick. Are you interested? And clearly he is. He's like, yeah, tell me, tell me. I'm like, well, you just walk into a coach's office and you quit. And, and, and he's like, well, that, like, he doesn't say that's bullshit, but you can see a wry smile come <laughs> up on his face. He's like, well, I'm not going to do that. Well, why won't you do that? Because I like this, this, right. and this, and I want to do this, this, and this. All right, so these things are more important than the dickheads on Twitter. We've established that, cool. Well, now we can get on with the business instead of avoiding those emotions.
1: you are helping um, him exchange one feeling for another. We just... We We just do it in this very direct way.
2: Yeah. So a lot of our listeners uh, are not professional athletes and are not professional traders, right? There may be a few scattered throughout the audience, but many of them are husbands and wives. Many of them are boyfriends and girlfriends. Many of them are people who go to work, whether it's in an office setting, whether they work in a medical setting, whether they're a soldier on the front line, they are all working in different contexts, but the stakes are relative, right? It's, it's inconceivable yeah. for me to trade and lose fifteen or $20,000 in a day. Like, that would be the end of my trading career right there. <laughs> not going to happen. And so, but that's all relative because I do other things where people might be like, whoa, there's no way I'm going to do that. I'm not going to get stand up in front of a pro football team and talk to them about their emotions. That is out of my, like, I'm not doing that, right? So it's all relative. For these people who are medics or business owners or uh, a sergeant in the, in the army, like how, how would your work with traders apply to the, I'm gonna say average in air quotes, the average human who's trying to do what they do and dealing with things that are relatively risky in their
1: arena? Well, our human beings you know, are the, the fundamental mechanisms of perception and judgment is the same. Like we're all using how we feel, whether we know it or not. So for those of us who don't know it, like it's an advantage we can learn to take advantage of, or it's a benefit we can learn to take advantage of by understanding what are we feeling and why are we feeling it in no judgment. Like anything anyone feels anywhere, anytime, has a logic to it. It may be displaced. You know, you may be taking your critical father and imputing him into your boss and being afraid of your boss really, you know, because it's more about the way your dad always criticized you, but you can untangle that. And in untangling it, recognize that like you can deal with your boss in a different way. You can only do that if you understand what am I feeling and truly why am I feeling it, which then leads you to like, okay, this set of feelings is a about the past or, you know, it's exaggerated because of the past. And this other set of feelings is my intuition and my unconscious pattern recognition based on the expertise I've developed. And I want to listen to the second group of feelings. And the only way I can do that is to neutralize the first group of feelings. And The only way I can truly neutralize the first group of feelings is just to assign them to their accurate cause. But you got to just stop the judgment. Like, there's so much judgment of what we feel in the world that it hurts people. And we hurt ourselves. We have people all the time. Well, I can't or shouldn't feel that. You feel what you feel. I guarantee you there's a reason. But, like, just accepting it for yourself and being kind to yourself, that in and of itself can make you more confident and make you more centered and then make you more able to do the thing you want to do instead of constantly judging yourself, even if you don't neutralize the feeling.
2: And so is it as simple as just asking those two questions that you threw out there of what am I feeling and why am I feeling that? Like that, that, that is a very simple first step towards, at the very least, uncovering these emotions that are driving our either avoidance or decision-making, which we may not like or may not be the most efficient way to get what we want. Is it, is it as simple as just asking those two questions?
1: It is. The trick, however, is the answers aren't necessarily easy. So that's what I always say. It's a simple thing to say, a simple thing to try to do. It's not necessarily an easy thing to get right. I think, like, I don't think I'd even be sitting here if at the end of the day, uh, I, you know, I went to a place like the Chicago Mercantile Exchange in 2006. And gave this message to a bunch of floor traders at the end of the day. And one of the floor traders said to me, I have never seen, like, these 200 guys sit still for an hour, like, after a, a, a day on the trading floor. But why did they? Because what, what I was saying is it's just human, and it was resonating with them. And so, like, someone who undertakes this, you're actually um, lowering the static, like, that's in your head. You know, you're, you're lowering the agitation of the self-criticism by just realizing that, like, all your feelings have some meaning. It's just some of it's going to be, like, about stuff that happened in the past and how that influenced your self-image, and some of it's going to be about now. And the more you can attribute the old stuff to the past, the more you can be in the here and now and use the feelings that are there to help you or and have more confidence really i mean all of this ends up creating confidence in yeah.
2: people and 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 you talked about removing static and often for those who may not use, like use some of the coaches don't like the word confidence because it's uh, they see it as an excuse for them to get out but in the end they say the same thing i want them to be clean and clear like yeah what does that lead to mm-hmm. the the ability to get there is often hampered by our static for want of a better term, which is sometimes just feeling bad about how we're feeling. Like that was my trap, not necessarily myself as an athlete, but definitely when I was coaching from a cognitive point of view to start and saying think positive thoughts and the players would feel bad about the fact they couldn't always think positive. Right. Like they'd feel bad about the fact that I wasn't confident today. Like it's bad enough to just not feel confident. You shouldn't feel guilty that you can't feel confident, right? And we're just layering and layering on ourselves and – that, and what you've described there matches the experience of a number of different arenas. And I'm curious to circle back to you, John. We're going we're to be winding it up soon, but can you share with us the first time? So you said, you know, you worked with Denise a, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, but it was <laughs> the first time that it shifted your ability to get to that space where it was clean and clear or where you were confident and where you were able to trust your gut without second and third level thoughts getting in the way, right? Or the few that worry of the future emotion when you were clear what did that feel like what did it look like for you
0: for me it was it was understanding and really getting into what my patterns were and they they after you pay attention and and you're willing to to non-judgmentally look at how what feelings are coming up their patterns do emerge and the first thing I noticed is that yes, it did help me a lot on the trading floor, but it helped me a lot in my everyday life as well. And so, just this was able to help me have better relationships. It was also able to, like Denise said, and, and this is one of the things I say as well: that the chatter in your mind goes way down, way down, because you don't have to constantly beat yourself up. I was I was speaking to a client today, a NASCAR guy, and you know, just just this idea that. We have to always be berating ourselves in order to get better, to get better, to get better. And, you know, like most things, it has a kernel of truth to it, right? Most people have gotten to where they are, at least competitors, by being r- relentless about everything. And mm-hmm. so just taking a step back and appreciating things is difficult. And the self love and self appreciation is difficult. And the other thing about what this method does it is it, it gives time between the feeling and action therefore we're able to have a feeling and not automatically act on act it, on it. Mm-hmm. and it gives us choices of what we can do with these feelings
2: and, and again that, and that, for
0: me that's the mo- being in the moment
2: right and and you mentioned there like you mentioned at the start and you touched on it again there that early on you were talking about i was learning the market but partly if not more, I was learning myself mm. and, and both myself and also a lot of other guests that we've had on talk about this. Getting good at something is partly a process of learning skills but in a large part it's about learning about yourself and your response to certain things, potentially why you do it. But if not, if you don't want to go to the why, then at very least if I respond that way and it's not helpful, what am I going to do about that? And building a library of here's who I am and here's the situations being able to marry the two in the best way so that you can be present and you can approach things from a place of love as opposed to a place of fear and avoidance mm. without, sounding, without sounding too soppy
1: for those <laughs> out there who
2: are on that NASCAR end of the spectrum yeah. and, and, want, and want to still mm-hmm. be hard on themselves. Um, as I said, we're about to wind it up. I want to thank you both again for, uh, for joining us and for passing on your hard-earned wisdom from decades of work in a in – a, very high end field where there's a lot of pressure and a lot of risk. Denise, I want to I want to finish with this because there will be some listeners who potentially tuned in purely because you are the woman who the character in HBO's Billions, uh, Wendy Rhodes, was in large part modelled on yourself. And so there are going to be people who come to it thinking like that's exactly what it is, right? They see the TV show and that must be what you do. Can you can you leave us with one? One, the, the thing that you see that immediately like that is absolutely not what we do. And then finish with the one the one thing that you're like, here's actually that's actually pretty accurate. We do do that and that's something that you can do at home to try and apply this yourselves.
1: The don't do is going to be hard off the top of my head. But the do-do, just this season, when they looked at Taylor and said, well, these aren't the exact words, but basically you have a, spectrum of conviction, but it's infused with your emotional baggage. I was like, well, actually it was pointed out to me that she said it. Um, <laughs> that's it. I'm always trying to get people to understand like their spectrum of conviction or confidence. And then like what's their own personal history that's infusing it and, and interrupting it. Um and- don't do I mean don't do with the risk of like, I don't do that dominatrix thing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that is uh, that is a decision infused with a lot of different
0: emotion there, obviously. That's right. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah Denise yeah,
0: also yeah. isn't mean and aggressive to her clients. Like, <laughs> Wendy's like, you know, you need to snap out of this. Denise does not. Yeah, when she,
1: she says you, I, I would never say you need to snap out never. of it. Never. Like,
2: it's. And, uh, well i i appreciate uh again appreciate you both being on here sharing your experience and and uh, especially that last tip uh you talk about uh, i want to just dig into that spectrum of confidence i was i know we we're about to finish but that to me feels like an un an unwrapped nugget there um the spectrum of confidence you want to understand your spectrum of confidence and conviction and the emotion that's mixed up in it to to what end though like it Just to understand it or like, how does that lead me to make a better decision?
1: The research shows that the more you can put the emotion into words and get it right.
2: So labeling your emotion.
1: Yeah, the better decision you'll make. So I want someone to be able to say, I'm flipping panic if it's right. And if that word connects to that, the energy and agitation in their gut. Because I know when they like nail the fact that they're panicked, they will actually like almost immediately be less panicked.
2: Oh, that's really cool. So there's the one simple takeaway. If nothing else, you can just label your emotions and you'll be a better
0: decision maker.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very
0: cool. Very cool little trick. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try and it myself. The, and the feeling that, that happens when, that, when Denise does that so well is that there's almost like this, because I was on a call with Denise last week and I was getting at something I was feeling. And I was like, oh, that felt so good to say out loud. I feel so much better now. Mm-hmm. and it, you know just saying that is like it alleviates it's it's uh, it, the balloon the pressure valve just goes off and Denise is extremely good at figuring out how to guide a person in that direction
2: to the right label that resonates Correct. With you, right right mm-hmm. it's funny I, I I had an interview um for an article that's coming up in Sports Illustrated of just about the holistic athlete and, and they're talking to me about this element of performance. And they I, and I said, what do you actually do? And, you know, if you're sitting with an athlete, I said, well, it varies. Sometimes a guy just wants to sit there and get, vomit all his shit out on me <laughs> and just, just put it all out. We sit there for an hour and a bit and then I'm like, okay, well, what, do you, you know, what are we going to do? And he's like, no, no, no I'm good. I just, <laughs> I just needed to say that and I feel yeah. great now. And off he goes. Yeah. And and that's, that is, uh, you've just put it into much more succinct terms. That's better than saying he vomits all his bullshit out. It's (laughs) it's much, much better than just say he labels his emotions.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, what, but see, you're, you actually are doing something there. You're listening and he's feeling heard. And not everyone can do that. I mean, again, it sounds simple, but like you are. And it's like, okay. And then he can, you know, if he feels, like, recognized, he can sort through it on his own. That's why he says, okay, we're good. Because basically you don't really realize it, but you help him sort through it.
2: Yeah, very, very well summarized. Again, thank you both for being here. I hope you've had as much fun as I have. Um, it been a
0: blast. Thank you. It has been. Thank it literally you. has been a
2: blast. I'm going to put up um, an emoji of me with my <laughs> brain blasting out the top when I uh, label this <laughs> episode and put it up. But uh, thanks again for your time. If people want to find... Uh, Denise or John, where do they go for... Well, firstly, Denise, you wrote a great book, so they'll be able to find that on Amazon. The title is... Correct. Market Mind Games. And also, if they don't want to read your book and they just want to go straight to you or to or John, they
1: want to talk to you, where's the best place to find each of So our company's called The Rethink Group, and it's the rethinkgroup.net.
2: Perfect. Thanks again for both your time. and. Uh, Look forward to talking more down the track.
1: Thank you All for right. having
0: thank, us. Thank you very much. Cheers.
1: So what is it got to be so yeah. uh, Excellent. Busting with the best in them. Simply impressive. No
2: worrying no I'm getting my right now. Put your shades on
0: and let me show your hand. Yeah. Right.